Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Dr. Elena McDonald, who is a astrophysicist and here today to educate me and maybe you as well on uh, on space and things like black holes and supernovas and how time elapses in space. She's just unreal at explaining this stuff. She did it in a way that even I was able to kind of pick up on it a little bit. So I so truly appreciate her being on the show. And uh, I know you're going to like it too. If you have any sort of interest whatsoever in space, which you should, because you uh, exist in it. Uh, And yeah, awesome. So if you like this show and would like to give us some feedback, which we always encourage and appreciate, you can email us at robsprobablywrong at gmail.com, as well as follow us on our blog at probablywrong.ca. Enjoy the show. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered, this is an open mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Uh, we're joined here today by uh, Dr. Ilana uh, McDonald, who is a uh, is an astronomer, and she's she's going to tell us about her journey and her research and what she's doing now. So, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having now, me. Well, honestly, thank you for as soon as you sent your email about black holes and the. Your, your research you did for your your doctorate I was like oh this is we got to have this person on yeah so tell us about black holes like what are they okay all right uh so a black hole is a very strange object it's mm-hmm. uh, an object that has collapsed under its gravity to such a degree that even light cannot escape from its gravitational pull so it's uh, collapsed down to something we call a singularity, which is a point of infinite density. And um, so, so you know how like on the earth, if you want to escape the earth via rocket ship, you have to be going a certain speed. And if you're going any less than that speed, you fall back towards the earth. And if you're going faster than that, you can escape the earth's gravity. So black holes are objects where you would have to be traveling faster than the speed of light in order to actually escape from them. So there's this region around a black hole called the event horizon Mm. uh, at which, and it's at that point that you'd have to be traveling at the speed of light in order to escape. But uh, according to relativity, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So that means that nothing can escape a black hole once it's gone past that uh, event horizon, which is simultaneously very exciting and very scary. (laughs) Yeah. That's terrifying. Cause couldn't the earth get sucked up by a black hole? I mean, Potentially, but we've discovered a few black holes in our own galaxy and the closest black holes to us are on the order of thousands of light years away. So they're very, very far away. The chances of us running into a black hole are next to none. Very, very small. Mm. So it's, it's not something we actually have to worry about too much. Yeah, because this is actually something I think I talked to that guy about uh, that if it could have happened, it already would have. I mean, in the amount of time that, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I mean, you, you could potentially have a rogue black hole somewhere in our galaxy that's just traveling around and we haven't observed it yet. And it gets a little bit too close to the sun and the earth. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
does some damage there. Uh, but I mean, we haven't discovered any black holes that are close enough to do that with any, any of our lifetimes. And it's also like the distances between stars are so much that that chance encounter is, is very, very, yeah. very low probability. Yeah. We would, we, we would win like, you know, the lottery of the cosmos only instead of that, yeah. we get sucked off into a black hole, which is something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there is this misconception that black holes are like cosmic vacuum cleaners that just oh. anything they go by uh, is automatically sucked into the black hole, but they, they have gravity. I mean, they obey the laws of gravity just like everything else does. So for example, if the sun was to all of a sudden turn into a black hole right at this moment, the orbit of the earth around the sun would not change at all. It would still keep going because that black hole would have the same mass as the sun. And so our orbit wouldn't be changed. It's only when you get very, very close to a black hole that weird stuff starts to happen. And if you get close enough to the black hole that you pass its event horizon, then you're trapped in it forever. And probably so, ripped apart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, I, I, I was reading, I think it was Stephen Hawking's short, short book, his, his last book. And he talks about black holes and how there's different mm -hmm. sizes yeah what is what is on the other side of a black hole well <laughs> that we don't know because there's no way for information to actually escape from that event horizon because as i said before nothing can travel faster than the speed of light and you would have to be traveling faster than the speed of light for information to escape so any light cannot escape from inside a black hole um, and no matter, obviously, because matter can't travel as fast as light. So there's no information really that's escaping from a black hole. So it's, it's very difficult for us to know what's actually inside that black hole. And there's all sorts of theories about what that could be. Um, that's not 100% my area of expertise. That's a little, it goes into uh, the weird physics of the teeny tiny at that point. Because I don't know if this is correct, but obviously these are all theories. These are all theoretical. This is all theoretical uh, physics. But somebody was saying that black holes can be, they, they could potentially be parallel universes. Like nobody, you know, how can anybody know, I guess, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we can't know what's inside a black hole, but there are theories that, um, you know, the a black hole curves space time so much that it could sort of fold back in on itself into a different part of the universe and be a wormhole. Um, but of course, there's no way of us knowing if that's true or not, because again, there's no information escaping from those black holes that we can see. It's not to say that like, I mean, you said all of this is theoretical. Black holes do exist. We see them, Right. we, we have observed several black holes and we have lots of different lines of evidence that show us that black holes do exist. Um, but yeah, what happens inside a black hole is all theoretical or right. hypo hypothetical at this point. So now if a black hole, like have they seen it, have they seen it consume things? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so so uh, let's talk, yeah. So there's, there's two different types of black holes. Um, there are stellar mass black holes, which are uh, black holes that are only a few times heavier than the mass of our sun. And then there are supermassive black holes, which are these black holes that are millions of times the mass of, millions to billions the times of the mass of our sun. Uh, and there's one of these at the center of uh, almost every galaxy that we observe. So um, 
the black hole at the center of our galaxy, uh, Sagittarius uh, A star, is a supermassive black hole that's four million times the mass of the sun. And uh, we've observed gas uh, going in towards this black hole and getting broken up and accelerating in towards the black hole. So that, that's something we have observed. Um, and also uh, one of the ways we observe black holes is through something called X-ray binaries. And the very first black hole that was discovered or observed, I should say, uh, is called Cygnus X1. And the X implies that it's an X-ray source. And what that X-ray uh, light comes from is uh, this black hole is in a binary system with a star. And some of the material from that star is falling onto the black hole. And as it approaches the black hole, it spins around more and more rapidly and accelerates. And because it's accelerating so much, it gets very, very hot. And then it gives off this very energetic light uh, in the form of X-rays. And so we're indirectly observing, by observing those X-rays, we're observing material that's falling off of a star into a black hole. Whoa. So, yeah. So, okay, and, and, and I apologize for listeners and I apologize to you because I hear some of this and I'm like, uh. <laughs> but it's, it almost sounds like this black hole that's at the center of um, a galaxy is like a drain. It's like things are like circling the drain, like, are they getting pulled into this thing? Like, well, as I said before, gravity is acting at larger distances, just as it would for any massive object of that size. So if we had a collection of uh, 4 million stars that did yeah. not collapse into a black hole, if you were far enough away, the gravity of the black the hole and the gravity of those million stars would not, would act stay in the place. Same. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, we have observed um, stars that are in more or less stable orbits around uh, that supermassive black hole at the center of our of our galaxy. So uh, one of the ways that we've figured out that it is about four million suns worth of mass is that we've observed uh, these these stars at the very center of our galaxy that are uh, going around this uh, this supermassive black hole. Um, and you can map out their orbits. And when you can map out an orbit really precisely, you can actually just use um, Newtonian gravity to figure out what the mass is of the thing at the center. And the cool thing is, is that you observe all these stars going around and around and around, but there's nothing that's emitting light at the center. And so if you have something that's 4 million times the mass of the sun, and it's not emitting any light, then you know it has yeah. to be a black hole which I think is that, <laughs> that is, okay, so you're trying to tell me there's a black hole that is four million times the size of our sun. Well, the mass of our sun, yeah. The, the mass. Yeah, so if you took like all the matter that is our sun and multiplied it uh, four million times, but then like yeah. squished it down into a very, very small space, then, oh, okay. uh, so, so the event horizon, that yes. area, black hole, which you'd have to be going faster than the speed of light to escape, that area would fit well within the orbit of Mercury. So even though it's a very massive object, it's not a very voluminous object. Yeah, it's it, not. It doesn't take up a lot of space. Like our, uh, so. Very, very again, compact. Yeah. I, I apologize for this question, but is a black hole, is it like spherical like the sun or is it like 2d like what do they what do they speculate it is 
we, we imagine that it's, it's like a spherical hole oh, in yeah. space time. Um, so, you know, looking at it from any angle, it would be three dimensional. And I know that oftentimes we represent black holes in two dimensions just because it's easier to yeah. visualize where you have that that whole rubber sheet analogy and then the black hole is where you've curved in that rubber sheet you know infinitely yes. down forever so imagine that but in three dimensions okay. yeah. <laughs> easy right <laughs> yeah sort it of. still it still blows my mind yeah because yeah. it's almost like a like a weird sieve like it's not a ball yeah. going out it's like a ball going in or something yeah so if you want to imagine what it would look like if you were close uh to a black hole um did you see uh dang interstellar great film yeah it was, i was just thinking so, of that movie okay today, yeah. up to a point uh right. there was some weird stuff that happened near the end that i 100 <laughs> agree with but that's okay um so in that movie, the visualizations of the black hole and a lot of the science that had to do with the black hole were actually very accurate. Um, mm -hmm. And the person who worked on, uh, who was a science consultant for what a black hole should look like from that distance uh, was Kip Thorne, who won the Nobel Prize in physics, uh, along with a couple of other guys for the discovery of gravitational waves. Uh, how many years ago was it now? Like three or four years ago now. Um, and so, yeah, and, and so, <laughs> yeah, so Kip Thorne, uh, he helped consult on what it should look like. And so for that reason, like, as far as we know, it's, it's pretty close to uh, what it should actually look like. So the idea is, is you'd see sort of a, a black hole, uh, like just a black a void, circle, like a, vacuum, a void, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which would be sort of like the center of that event horizon, or at least the side of it that's facing us. And then um, around the, 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 that event horizon, you'd see this extreme curvature of light. So uh, gravity can actually act as a lens because uh, as uh, light rays from dist distant objects are going around a black hole or going towards a black hole, they actually their path actually gets bent by the gravity of the black hole. So uh, you know, let's say these two light rays are going out from each other at you know a ninety degree angle. If there's a black hole between these two light rays, those those light rays will want to curve inwards. And so um, when you look at this black hole, you'll see all this like weird distortion of light around the edge of it. And this is actually something we observe, uh, you know, all over. Uh, the universe, but not with black holes, but with like big clusters of galaxies that have a, a huge amount of gravity. And that's, it's just called gravitational lensing. And you can see like very distant galaxies, their light is sort of bent around these huge clusters of galaxies that are a little bit closer to us. Now, gravity, so, okay, th this is what's confusing for me. The Earth's gravity is not the same as the gravity on Mars, correct? Well, I mean, it's, it follows the same rules, but it is follows more. the same. Yeah. Right. So, so what's the difference? Help me understand. Uh, no small task. Uh, the difference in the gravity between Mars and Earth. Like, what are the? Is it because of our atmosphere that makes a change? No. no. I, it only has to do with the mass of the object. So, uh, the Earth. I forget how many times more massive it is than Mars, but the Earth is. A lot more massive than Mars. Oh. And so Mars is a smaller planet than the Earth is. And so because it has uh, less mass, then it exerts less gravity on the people who are standing on it. So, uh, okay. you know, for yeah. example, the, the moon is, uh, I think, about 
nine times smaller than the earth, I want to say, but I could be wrong. Uh, you could fit the moon into the earth a bunch of times. Uh, and um, the, the gravity on the surface of the moon is a lot less because the mass of the moon itself is a lot less. So gravity, uh, according to Isaac Newton, follows uh, a fairly simple rule where mass depends, or sorry, the force of gravity depends only on the mass of the objects and on the distance you are from the objects. And the farther away you are from a massive object, the less gravity you feel. And the more mass of that object, the more gravity you feel, essentially. Whoa. Okay, yeah. That's so crazy how he said that, what, 400 years ago or something? Something like that, yeah. And he was right? Mostly right. <laughs> now, the moon, is actually a piece of our planet, isn't it? A piece of Earth? That's what we think. Um, we do think that sometime very, very early in the formation of the solar system, that a uh, when you had this little proto-Earth that was basically just a ball of liquid hot rock, uh, we think that at some point there was a roughly Mars-shaped object that crashed into this proto-Earth they sort of melded together and a small piece of the earth flew off into space and then coalesced into a sphere again yeah. and started orbiting around the earth and uh, became the moon. So yes, exactly. The, the moon used to be a little piece of the earth plus another planetesimal that was probably about the size of Mars. It would have been well, a very it, chaotic event. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be very dramatic. Yeah. Well, it, I also heard that like life on our planet, apparently it's possible that during this period, this very chaotic period where, you know, we're just like this liquid hot ball of, you know, mass that there's all these asteroids coming in. And that's where I correct me if I'm wrong here, but like prokaryotes came from was from an asteroid that landed here. And then life came from that. Another theory, of course. Yeah, I mean, there, there are ideas about that. So, I mean, it would have depended at which point in the formation of the solar system. So uh, our solar system's about four and a half billion years old. So that's a lot yeah. of time for stuff to happen. Uh, very early uh, in the history of the solar system. So before there was even a solar system, there would have been this big cloud of gas and dust that was floating around in space. And, um, there would have been a denser region probably at the center that would have started to collapse under the force of gravity. Uh, it would have had a bit of an initial spin to it. So uh, due to the laws of conservation of angular momentum, uh, the part that was spinning less would have coalesced downwards and the other parts would have flung out and it would be become sort of this dusty, gassy, hot disc. At the very center uh, would be the densest region and that was where we think the sun formed. Uh, so it would have collapsed under the force of its own gravity so much until the pressures at the very center became so so much that uh, fusion would have begun. So hydrogen molecules, or sorry, atoms uh, fusing together to become helium atoms. And uh, the this disk of material that was floating around this brand new sun, uh, it would have had slightly denser regions um, that would have also collapsed under the, the force of gravity. So we'd call these planetesimals uh, because they're not quite, or protoplanets, you could call them. Um, they're not quite planets yet, but they're starting to have that sort of shape. 
And so this, this very early solar system would have been crazy chaotic because you'd have these newly formed, very hot objects that are going around the sun. They're crashing into each other. This is all this extra material that's crashing into everything. And so during that period, likely there would have been no way for any sort right. of life to exist because it would have just been like too yeah. much. Extinguished. Too many, yeah, too, too many crashes <laughs> for it yeah. to work out. But a little bit later, uh, I think we call it the late bombardment period, when there was still some material left between these newly formed planets. Um, but these planets had sort of cleared out their orbits just a little bit more and become actual, you know, maybe more like planets and less like protoplanets. Right. Um, we think that maybe during that period when there was a lot of stuff hitting the earth and the moon and all the other planets that maybe at that point there could have been some more complex organic molecules that could have seeded the, uh, the earth and, and started life there. But yeah, again, not exactly my area of expertise. That's of course a yeah. biology question. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but to, to, to think that, like you said, seeded, you know, that life was seeded from, other things crashing in it's like well where where did that come from well so organic molecules such as uh you know like protein uh, amino acids and uh glucose and uh, uh the building blocks for fat and stuff like that all of that actually forms spontaneously fairly easily under the right conditions so they've they've put like early earth conditions in labs and had, you know, these types of organic molecules form. It's just that step to go from, you know, organic molecules forming and that translating into a life form that can replicate itself and become what we think of as life. But given, right. you know, between the formation of the sun four and a half billion years ago to the first appearance of like fossils, there's a couple billion years in there. And so, you know, that's plenty of time, you know, given infinite time, even very unlikely events will happen. And so obviously we haven't been able to run a lab that's been going that long, but <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is pretty like what, so you're saying that in space, there's molecules that are the mm -hmm. building, building blocks of, you know, amino acids and fats and stuff that are just in space. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think they're, they're these, I mean, again, this is more of a, like an astrobiology, biology kind of thing, but I believe I've heard of uh, amino acids forming on like comets or something. I don't know. That's, that's a little crazy. bit out, outside of my field, but. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and I don't want to, you know, hold you to anything. However, you know, the universe is massive. We can't even measure it. Do you think that there's life on other planets? Most likely. I mean, yeah. so there are, what, a couple hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone. We know in that- our galaxy, yeah. We know that most of those have planets going around them based on Kepler data. We know that a significant fraction of those are rocky planets that are Earth-like, you know, in that distance from the sun that is just the right temperature uh, for liquid water to exist. And so we- there could potentially be, I think the word was nine, nine billion. Don't quote me on that number, but like oh, I, I in, the, in that, in that ballpark, <laughs> in that ballpark yeah. of, of 9 million, no, sorry, 9 billion uh, earth-like planets in our galaxy. 
Um, the, and then of the, Earth-like planets. Yeah. Uh, and then of those, I mean, that's a lot of Earth-like planets. So it seems likely mm-hmm. that there, it, I mean, it would be very, very unlikely that Earth is the only place that life developed in our galaxy even. And then yeah. our universe is comprised, even just the visible universe, the universe that we can see has hundreds of billions of galaxies as well, you know, just like the Milky Way containing hundreds yeah. of billions of stars. So I think that is very unlikely that uh, Earth is the only life-bearing planet. Uh, of course, we don't know what other life forms would be like. They might be completely different than what we yeah. experience here. Um, We're green Martians. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, but I, I have to also qualify that with the fact that the distances between stars is incredibly vast. Yes. Like, I think that there probably is life even in our own galaxy, but I think that the chances of us running into it are also very low. So um, the closest star away is uh, the Alpha Centauri system, which is about four light years away. And that means that it takes light four years to get there and then light from that star four years to get back. Um, And uh, the fastest spaceships that humans have ever built are the Voyager probes. Mm -hmm. And they're currently going at several hundreds of kilometers per second. Um, But it would still take those probes about, uh, I think the the number was 80,000 years to get to even the closest star, right? Yeah. And then How you many try miles to imagine. Per hour is that? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. a lot. <laughs> Unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a big, it's a huge distance, even to the closest star. And then the other stars, you know, are much, much farther away than that, even. Uh, and so, in order for us to physically travel to these other stars or for another being to physically travel towards us, it would take so long. Um, you know, there's a better chance of uh, radio signals reaching us because um, they're traveling at the speed of light. So if there was a life form on Alpha Centauri, uh, it would only take four years for their radio signals to get to us and another four oh. years for us to respond, right? So a, a, a very halting dialogue could happen there, <laughs> potentially. Um, the fact that we haven't heard anything from them means probably not. But um, the... So, so we've been broadcasting signals into space for uh, probably about a hundred years, let's say. And so uh, our region of influence on the universe is this bubble with a radius of a hundred light years. And so anything within a hundred light years, which contains probably a few thousand stars would have a, a radio signal of ours would have passed by. Yeah. Um, but if you look at our galaxy, like imagine that your galaxy is about, our galaxy is about the size of a dinner plate. That bubble that encompasses all of humanity's influence on the universe would be only about as big as the tiniest moat of dust that you can still see with your naked eye. Right. So like if, if a civilization lasts for a thousand years, you know, their radio signals, if they sent any out, would broadcast across the galaxy, but they would prob- that civilization probably would have ended by the time their radio signals got to us. So our galaxy is like 100,000 yeah. roughly, 100,000 something light years across, 
from here to the end of our galaxy, it yeah. would take a hundred thousand years Roughly, of that radio yeah. signal. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the radius of it. Is that correct? Uh, that's a good question. Like like, I think like it's it the diameter out. of our galaxy is a hundred thousand light years, but I, that's something I'd have to look up. Yeah, because uh, and and here's where I mean I I apologize. You send out a radio signal. How would you pick up that radio signal? Like I mean, just with with a big radio dish. <laughs> I see. Yeah, because yeah. it, it, it's like they would need the technology exactly to, to pick yeah. that message up, right? Yeah, and maybe they decided that radio technology was not for them. Uh, yeah, and they, we got Wi-Fi. Yeah, right. Uh, maybe the planet that they, the life developed on doesn't have uh, an atmosphere that's very transparent to radio. And so they right. never developed radio technology. They're sending some other type of signal out and we'd never hear it because because of that. Yeah. Or, or they'd never pick up our signals because we're just basically sending out radio signals. Yeah, that's kind of a, a funny point. I mean, our form of communicating is very specific to us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, for someone to pick it up, they would need our technology because radioactive waves, but there Just are radio, radio waves. Yes, right, because that's on the spectrum of radioactive. Well, it's on the electromagnetic spectrum. Electro, okay, yeah, yeah. So um, it's all light, essentially. So photons that are traveling through space at the speed of light, um, these little massless particles that are also waves. And so uh, different types of light have different wavelengths. So the light we can see with our, our eyes is visible light. And that has a wavelength of somewhere between 400 and 700 nanometers, I believe. Um, so a shorter wavelength is bluer light and a longer wavelength is redder light. And so if you go uh, to longer and longer wavelengths, so redder than red, uh, essentially, um, you get into infrared light and then you get into microwaves and then you get into radio waves. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you go bluer than blue lights, so you get ultraviolet, ultraviolet. shorter and shorter wavelengths then you get x-ray light and then you get gamma ray light. Uh, now, so what, all of that is light. It just has different energies and different wavelengths. What What is a gamma ray again? Because don't they see those in space? Mm -hmm. Like a lot yeah. of them? Uh, you know, a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a fair number. Um, yeah. So gamma rays are just a very, very energetic form of light. So uh, you have x-rays, which are like... Mm -hmm. A very energetic form of light and the gamma rays are even more energetic than that so gamma rays are like the kind of light that will give you cancer uh because if it goes through your body enough then you get all of this very energetic light going through your body hitting your cells causing mutations yeah. uh making you have cancer uh which is one of the reasons why space is so dangerous so our atmosphere actually blocks a lot of light so you have all types of light coming in from the universe. You have a lot of light coming in, a lot of types of light coming in from the sun, but our atmosphere blocks uh, everything, just about everything, except for uh, the window where you have visible light, which is why we can see into space. Um, and the, uh, the window, a window around radio waves. So that's why we can send signals into space. And then there's a little bit of infrared and couple of other things. But this is the reason why a lot of the, the different wavelengths of light that we've detected have to go through space telescopes. So if you want to detect uh, ultraviolet, gamma rays, x-rays, you have to build space telescopes that can actually go above the Earth's atmosphere 
and then detect that type of light. So um, these X-ray sources, they have to be measured with, with uh, space telescopes, essentially. Yeah, because I, I, I was reading a uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson book. Neil deGrasse Tyson, yes. Oh, sorry. That's my, that's my that's inner, okay. like, uh, <laughs> high school. TV yeah, DeGrassi show. High. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was talking about uh, dark matter, dark energy, and how much of that is out there. And he was kind of explaining it. And I was like, whoa, that is, that's kind of going over my head. So what's the difference between dark matter and dark energy? Um, okay. Uh, so dark matter, uh, basically the dark in both of those names imply that we don't know what they are essentially, but dark matter, we know a little bit more about than we know about dark energy. So uh, dark matter was discovered uh, when we noticed that in, uh, for example, the, uh, the rotation curves of galaxies and uh, in uh, clusters of galaxies that are sort of orbiting around each other, um, that there was more mass that was present than what we could actually see through light. So um, for example, it was Vera Rubin who discovered that when you look at a, uh, a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way, for example, um, normally as you got farther and farther to the edge of the galaxy, those stars should start to go slower and slower uh, as they orbit around the center of the galaxy. Sort of like in our solar system, you know, you have the sun at the center and then as you get farther and farther away, the, the planets orbit slower and slower. But uh, what she measured was that as you got farther and farther away from the center of the galaxy, that uh, speed would actually stay about the same. And so that what that meant was that there either the laws of physics are totally wrong, but they didn't appear to be in other scenarios that we were looking at, um, or there's a mass there that we did not account for uh, before. And we called that mass dark matter. And so, uh, you know, we, we know it's, it's not black holes or like very, uh, you know, small stars that we don't see very well. Um, so it, we think it's probably some new form of matter that we haven't discovered yet um, that doesn't interact with light. So like light just passes straight through it, yeah. but it does interact gravitationally. So it, it's sort of as if the sun was just like a big blob of matter yeah, it's a giant <laughs> that didn't object. give off any light and you could see yeah. right through it, but it still had mass and still made the, the planets orbit yeah. around it. So we think that uh, our all, of all the mass that we have in the universe, I think the, the number is, oh geez, Louise. Uh, I forget the percentage and somewhere between 75 and 90% of, of uh, all matter in the universe is actually this dark matter. Um, and yes, we know that, that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, that's something that he mentions in the book. Yeah. So at this point we're, we're like fairly sure that dark matter exists because we observe it in lots of different scenarios. And, um, unless you like, I don't know, totally re revamp the laws of physics, you know, it would have to be some sort of matter that, that we, uh, we just can't observe via light, but we can detect its effects via gravity. Right. And, and, and this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You, you, yeah. I was going to well, move I, on to dark energy, but he have another question. Well, I was just thinking like, so this dark matter, is this, is this one thing altogether or is this all kinds of separate things? 
we we think that it's it's sort of clustered all throughout the universe gotcha yeah. so anywhere so, that there is matter that we can see there is also a greater amount of dark matter in that that area so if you if you've ever seen images of uh it's called the cosmic web where you have like clusters of galaxies and filaments and, and we think that the the whole structure of of the universe is essentially these clusters of galaxies and filaments of galaxies and then big voids where there aren't any galaxies you can sort of imagine uh dark matter following along all the lines where you have these galaxies. So we think that there's, for example, this huge halo of dark matter that surrounds the Milky Way galaxy, and that there are smaller clumps of dark matter that surround all the little tiny galaxies that are in orbit around the Milky Way galaxy. And we think that all the galaxies have this big halo of uh, dark matter sort of surrounding them. So it, it's everywhere in the universe, but it sort of yeah. clusters around where you see matter. That's, that's yeah. our, uh, our idea of it so far. Because what as you're explaining that, I'm thinking like, what if this is like holding us in place or something like that? Like, you know, well, some I'm, kind of yeah. I mean, it, it sort of it acts just like mass does, right? So like, you're gonna orbit around it. It's gonna cause okay. things to move around each other in the same way that gravity does for objects that we can see. Just it's something that we can't see and that doesn't interact with light. I got you. Okay. Yeah. And then, and, and, and what is, what is dark energy? All right. So dark energy is even more exotic and we know even less about it. Um, but the idea came about, um, so the idea of, of the universe is that it's expanding. We know that, you know, since the 19, uh, late 1920s, 1930s, when Hubble, first measured that all the galaxies appeared to be moving away from each other, which then mm -hmm. implied that the universe is expanding. So we know that the universe was expanding. We've known that for uh, almost a century now. Um, but we expected that since there is matter in the universe that, you know, it's expanding, but matter and gravity will start to cause the universe to uh, slow down in its expansion, or at least, you know, come to some sort of steady state where it's expanding at a constant rate. But what we've noticed by looking at uh, very distant galaxies and uh, very bright supernova from these distant galaxies, which we can talk about later if you want, um, is that uh, these, uh, is that the universe is not slowing down in its expansion, but it's actually accelerating in its expansion. So the universe uh, a long time ago was not expanding Slow. as quickly yeah. as it is now. And so that means that there has to be something in the fabric of space-time itself that's causing the universe to expand faster than gravity can like balance it out. And, um, and we call this mysterious thing, dark energy. Oh, that was great. I actually understood that. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> well, I, actually, you've done a wonderful job of it. But like when I read that in in the book, I was like, I don't know if I, uh, what is going on here, because would that mean that time is going by faster? No. Uh, what it means is just that things are starting to travel away from each other faster and faster. faster. Okay. So you can imagine that I don't know five, six billion years ago, the, the universe was not expanding at 
as high a rate as it is now. And that as time goes forwards, it will continue to expand at a more and more accelerated rate. So that means that you know clusters of galaxies will start to get farther and farther away from each other at an accelerated rate. Mm -hmm. Eventually within those clusters, galaxies will start to um, get farther and farther away from each other at a faster and faster rate until uh, this um, dark energy essentially overcomes gravity itself. The things that are holding clusters of galaxies and gotcha. then galaxies themselves together. So we think that in you know, trillions, quadrillions of years, um, that the universe might actually end in what we've called the, the heat death of the universe, which is where um, right. everything is so far away from each other that nothing can really interact uh, with anything else. And we call it the death of heat of the in the universe. So it, heat death is a little bit of a misnomer because then you think it's some sort of fiery death, uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but it's actually the opposite. It's where everything becomes so cold that uh, nothing can interact with anything else anymore. And it's just, that's, that's how the universe ends, not with a bag, but with a fizzle oh, whimper. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of an unfortunate end. Yeah. Another thing that I've thought about is like five minutes on earth, you know, five minutes right now. Mm -hmm. Would that feel the same as five minutes on Mars? Would the same as five minutes on, you know, Pluto? Like is time... Yeah, is it, does it change? It does, but the difference between the passage of, on of time on Earth and on Mars or on Pluto would be imperceptible to humans. So um, the theory of general relativity uh, developed by Einstein in 1915 uh, states that um, gravity causes time to slow down essentially. So the closer you get, to a very massive object, the more time slows down for you, essentially. And so if you're on the earth, time is actually passing slower for, me, for you than if you're uh, on the International Space Station, for let's say. Or if you're on earth, time is actually passing very slightly slower for you than it is on Mars, because the gravity is less on Mars. However, that difference between like the earth and Mars or the earth even at the International Space Station is so minute that you would yeah. not, it's like on the order of nanoseconds difference. Okay. But that that distance is, or that, that difference in time is enough that it actually uh, affects GPS. And so the GPS satellites that are going around the earth and calculating where you are, uh, you know, on your phone or whatever, those actually have to take into account general relativity and this difference in time based on the gravity of the earth uh, in order to get accurate measurements of where you are on the earth. Whoa, that's... Yeah, so practical applications of uh, astrophysical concepts. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you were talking something about supernovas. Oh yeah, I can talk about that. Um, so uh, supernovas are... Uh, so the, the reason why uh, we use supernovas for the measurement of dark energy is because uh, it's basically the explosion, uh, which is the death of a star. Right. Um, and we think that it, it, it always goes to about the same brightness. So this means that uh, if you know the brightness of the thing you're observing, and you know the theoretical brightness that it should achieve, then you can very easily tell well, not easily, but you know, you could you could calculate the distance to that object, and so you can get yeah. fairly precise 
measurements of these very, very distant objects. And they're, they're also very, very bright. So you can see a supernova happening in a galaxy that's billions of light years away. Um, so a supernova explosion, there's actually two types and I'll talk about one and then the other. Um, the first type is the death of a star. So uh, let's say you have a very, very massive star or let, let's start smaller. Let's say you have the sun. Okay, okay, so remember our, earlier- Like our sun. Yeah. Like our sun, yeah. yeah. Uh, so remember earlier I talked about how the sun in its core, uh, the reason it became a star is because uh, hydrogen, which is the lightest of all the elements, the simplest of all the elements, uh, there's enough pressure in the core of the sun uh, due to the massive gravity of the sun that uh, those two hydrogen atoms would fuse together and become helium, which is the next heaviest element. So uh, in the sun, uh, you're starting to run out of hydrogen and you get a buildup of helium, this next heaviest element. And there's a point at which um, the uh, core of the sun gets so full of helium and uh, it, that, that hydrogen fusion in the core can't happen anymore because there's just not enough hydrogen fusion. This is uh, essentially how the sun is gonna die. Uh, but what will happen is that there's this buildup of helium in the core and at some point, the sun will start to collapse in on itself because there's less hydrogen fusion yes. going on. And uh, this helium will start to fuse with itself because it'll collapse in on itself. Pressures will get higher again. And the helium atoms will start to fuse together and then become, uh, I believe, carbon, which would be uh, not the next heaviest element, one over, whatever. So you get carbon starting to fuse at the core of the sun. But the sun is very massive by our standards, but it's still not very massive right. uh, by the standards of a lot of stars. And so there, it may be able to fuse one element heavier than carbon, but at a certain point, uh, the outer layers of the sun will get too far away from the core mm -hmm. of the star. Um, and there just won't be enough pressure from gravity to fuse any heavier elements. And essentially the, the core will just stop fusing things, cool down, become something called a white dwarf and just sit there and cool yeah. down for a long time. And the outer layers of the sun will just drift off into a beautiful nebula and uh, it'll be very nice. Um, so that's like a relatively peace, peaceful death of a star. Um, right. But our sun is, as I said, not super massive. Um, so if you have a star that is much more massive than the sun, at least eight times the mass of the sun, then in the core, uh, it can fuse heavier and heavier elements. So, uh, as it's, uh, it, it'll start by fusing hydrogen into helium and then helium into carbon and then carbon into nitrogen and then oxygen, you know, like sort of working yeah, yeah, with yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the table of the elements. And every time it's fusing uh, these elements, that fusion reaction gives off a huge amount of energy, sort of like right. that. And that's what powers our sun, right? Is that fusion reaction pushing out against the force of gravity, which is pushing in. So um, at a certain point, uh, you'll go up to heavier and heavier elements until I think it's silicone in the core of this very massive star will start to fuse into iron. And oh. so all of these re reactions wow. so far, <laughs> essentially, yeah. so all of these reactions so far are giving off energy, but the fusion yeah. of iron takes in energy. It's a right. endothermic so reaction. Well, no, it's, it's still, it's still fusion. It's still fusion. Okay. Okay. But um, essentially, uh, 
it, it's an endothermic reaction where all the other reactions were exothermic. So giving off energy versus taking in energy. So right. the fusion of iron takes in energy. And so that means that when uh, iron starts fusing in the core of one of these very big stars, the core essentially collapses in on itself. And within a matter of seconds, all of that iron fusion that just happens collapses the core completely of the star. Um, the outer layers have nothing pushing up against you know, all of that gravity that wants to collapse inwards. All of those outer layers will collapse inwards and essentially bounce off that core and get so hot that this huge, uh, high, uh, huge hot reaction happens, thermonuclear reaction, that's the word I was looking for, uh, it happens and the star explodes outwards. And it's, it's, it's an explosion that like pretty much decimates what's left of the star except for the core. Um, and uh, it's such a violent explosion that the light that's emanated from it is actually as bright as like a million suns. So it's, it's this super, huge, energetic, fast, um, crazy explosion that uh, is, is visible. Like you'd be able to easily spot a star going supernova in another galaxy. And what you That's, see is basically just like a new star appear in the sky. That is the most metal thing I've ever heard. Like, Literally, because you're fusing iron. Yeah, yeah, good one. You picked up <laughs> on my joke, yeah. So a sun, uh, sorry, you're gonna say something? Oh yeah. So um, yeah. then the core of that, that, that star, that, that iron core uh, will co keep collapsing in on itself. And to sort of tie it back in to the beginning mm -hmm. of the stuff we were talking about, that's actually how one type of black hole forms is that that core uh, will be so massive and have such strong gravity. And there'll be so little pushing out against gravity that it will collapse on itself completely and become this singularity, this point of infinite density that even light can't escape. And, and that's how you'd have a black hole form. And if you have a slightly less massive star, then uh, this core will become what's called a neutron star, which is the densest object you can get before turning into a black hole. So the only thing pushing out against gravity is something we call neutron degeneracy pressure, which is like a quantum pressure between these little neutrons and that's the only thing like holding against gravity preventing it from collapsing inwards completely Whoa. so uh yeah so that that's one type of supernova explosion we call that type type two supernova i believe not not clear on the classification names it's been a while but um so so those are called core collapse supernova that's when a star dies its core collapses and you get this huge explosion outwards um the other type of supernova, which is the one we more often use to measure distances, is a type 1a supernova. And that's, we're not 100% sure of the mechanism behind that, but we know it has something to do with uh, white dwarfs uh, collecting enough matter to then mm. explode outwards. So uh, one model, which was more popular a couple of decades ago, is that you have a white dwarf, which is the core of like a sun-like star, uh, it collects matter from another star that let's say it's in a binary system with, and it accrues so much matter that it reaches this thermonuclear reaction and explodes outwards. And uh, it always has to reach a same mass in order to explode. Uh, and so it always achieves the same brightness essentially. And then another model is you have two of these white dwarfs that are circling around each other and then collide oh. with each other. And, and that's how you 
would get this supernova explosion. Right. Yeah. Resulting in a black hole eventually. Maybe. Correct? Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah. 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 If they don't destroy each other completely. Because <laughs> this explosion is wow. so powerful that it could, you know. You think them. about it, the, the universe is like so violent. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. but it's violent. It's very violent. Yeah. Do, do you know like the history of terminology? Like, how did they look up at the sun and they're like, yeah, let's call that the sun? Like, how did it get that name? Oh, I, the, like ancient mythology, I suppose. Probably some <laughs> yeah. god or something like yeah, that. It was yeah, named after so, some god. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I, I don't have the answer to that question. That wasn't me being smart. Uh, but the sun, like, I always thought it was this big ball of like lava. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, not definitely not. Right. Yeah. So what is it? Just like a giant? Is it just a, a giant fire in space or? Sort of, but not really. Uh, it's it's what we call plasma. So it's a giant ball of burning gas in space, uh, which is, so plasma is where, uh, so, so you have an atom, right? Which is yep. nucleus and electrons going around it. And a plasma is when uh, all of those atoms have been ionized. Uh, which means that the electron, there's so much energy that the electrons have jumped away from the atom and are just floating freely. So uh, the sun is essentially this big ball of hydrogen gas, mostly, uh, that is in this plasma form because it's so hot. And at the core, it's just like much denser hydrogen gas in this plasma form. And uh, and then at the very center would be this nugget of helium that's starting to form. So it's essentially just a big burning ball. It's gas. Yeah. yeah, it's gas, essentially. So Pumbaa was right in The Lion King. He was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that scene. I always just thought they were big balls of burning gas. Yeah, yeah. Everything's gas to you, Pumbaa. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So what what got you into this? What got me into astronomy? Yeah. Astronomy, yeah. Well, the story I like to tell is um, that as a child, uh, my bot, my my dad got really into astronomy, mm-hmm. and he he bought what I like to call his midlife crisis telescope, which is uh, <laughs> it was a sixteen inch uh, Newtonian telescope on a Dobsonian mount, if that means anything to you. Uh, so basically this 16 inch wide mirror and a six foot long tube. Yeah, that's why it was his midlife crisis telescope. Yeah. It was free. Yeah, that wasn't cheap. Yeah, yeah no, it was not. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we set this up in our backyard and I grew up in the Eastern townships of Quebec where it's very, uh, you know, it's a lot of farmland. So it's very <laughs> good skies. And we'd look at you know, Saturn and Jupiter, and we'd look at nebula. And my favorite thing to look at as a kid was the ring nebula, Messier 57, which is in the constellation Lyra. And he, I remember him like teaching me the constellations and stuff. And, you know, I just got really into it at that point. And from that point onwards, I just, it was like, yeah, math, physics, astronomy, this science, is this is my jam. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then when I was in grade nine, uh, we went on this school trip to uh, a local university. Uh, So in my high school, all of the smart kids, like if you had above a certain average, you got to go on special insight field trips, which were like the field trips for the smart kids. Um, And so we got to- I wouldn't have gone to one of those probably. (laughs) 
might have, you know, in a different subject, maybe. Uh, but uh, we essentially uh, went to the local university and they talked to us about general relativity and black holes. And they showed us a video with Stephen Hawking. And I was just like, this, this is really cool stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then on the bus ride back, there was this boy who I had like the hugest crush on at the time. And he was talking about uh, general relativity and time dilation where the time changes if you're closer to a very heavy mass and you know, it, you know, time is relative, it passes at different rates at different places in the universe. And I was just like, oh, that's so cool. And it just like blew my mind. And I had one of those like, oh my God, that's so amazing kind of moments. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, and at that point I was like, I wanna study black holes and I want to, uh, you know, be an astrophysicist. And then uh, I just studied physics and took all the science courses I could and went to uh, do my undergrad in physics. And then I applied to the University of Toronto and did my PhD in astrophysics and the rest is history. Huh? <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah. What, if you don't mind my asking, what year did you graduate high school? Oh, geez. Um, 2003, I think, like, I want to uh, say. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, to, have, to have accomplished your PhD, you know, that's very impressive. Good for yeah. you. Well, I right. went straight through, right? Like I yeah, got my PhD yeah, yeah. when I was 27. And that's amazing. Par apparently that's young to get a PhD, but I, I just kept going and I finished on time and just had a, a very, very good trip that way. Um, although, uh, so I went into grad school at U of T uh, and I studied uh, with Harold Pfeiffer working on uh, the ripples in space-time that come from two black holes that are going around each other, which we call gravitational waves. Um, and while I was doing my PhD, I was working on like really cool stuff, but I just realized that research was a little bit too mm. uh, small. It was like, mm. you're working on this very, very small subset of a problem. And you know, mm. you have all of astronomy knowledge and like you're expanding it by this little yeah. pinprick into space, uh, which is, you know, cool. And it, a lot of people love that. It's really fun problem solving and stuff. But I just realized that I wanted more of a, of a big picture kind of job. So when I graduated, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to go into research. Uh, and I decided instead to try and work more on the education and uh, public outreach kind of front. And, uh, and that's sort of what I've been doing since. Well, so. you, like I said, these are very, you know, complicated things for a dense person such as myself and you've done a very wonderful way of explaining it well thank you so here's, so here's I, a practice <laughs> there you go yeah but but i i thank you so much uh ilana and uh i would love to have you on again oh, to yeah, share with us pleasure. yeah so i have a lot more things i could talk about we oh i get I, into I, my phd thesis <laughs> oh my yeah i'm so yeah well, I, I, I was getting so carried away, everything that you're talking about. I was like, I looked at the time and I was like, oh my gosh, it's we're at 50 minutes. So, yeah. Can't, couldn't even tell yeah. so quickly. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we must be, you know, something to do with the space time. Yeah, there. time is relative. It passes slowly when you're bored and quickly when you're having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I worry about that because time just seems to just fly by in my life. So, yeah, well, it means you're having a good time, I guess. Oh, I, I definitely am. Do you have, do you, <laughs> well, I, I have a 15 month old daughter and uh, oh, wow. yeah, that's talk about uh, entering a space time vortex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine. Like, 
Yeah. Time passes very quickly then because you're just oh. so busy. <laughs> yeah. The days are long, but the years are short, if that makes any sense. It totally does. Yeah. Well, Ilana, thank you so much. And uh, I, I look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Okay, take care. Toodles. Once again, that was Dr. Ilana McDonald uh, sharing with us about black holes and her understanding of space. Um, I really appreciate how she was able to be incredibly patient with me and it, some of my crazy questions and uh, how new I am at all of this. So, you know, that was that was really very gracious of her. One thing that I thought was so fascinating is this idea of light speed and time and and the theory of relativity and this idea of if you're not having a good time, time is slow. And if you're having a really good time, time is quite fast. And in our lives, it's like, damn. How do we make the most of the time that we have? How do we make the time that we get meaningful? And that is definitely something that I want to work on, is making the most of my time and making the time that I do things meaningful and not just, you know, scrolling at my phone every chance I get. So maybe that's something that you've thought of too. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I certainly got a lot out of it. I look forward to being with you again soon. Take care. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.